Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel, and this week, I'm very excited about our guests. Meet Atman Laraki, the co-founder and CEO of Color, a health technology company building public health infrastructure. Atman co-founded Color in 2013 with the aim of using genomics for population health and has since raised over $200 million in venture funding. Color has partnered with everyone from the NIH on health data projects to companies like Visa and Salesforce to deliver employee health benefits. Prior to Color, Upman has played an integral role in building platforms used by millions of people. With degrees from Stanford and MIT, he spent several years at Google, where he developed front-end products, including the Chrome browser. His startup, Mixer Labs, was then acquired later on by Twitter in 2009, and he led product at Twitter as it grew from 50 to 200 million unique accounts. He's also a longtime investor and advisor to companies like Pinterest, Slack, and Instacart. Let's welcome Upman. Hi, Upman. How you doing? Good. Thank you for having me. You had two wild rides at big tech giants, Google and Twitter, during just periods of extreme growth. I want to ask specifically, starting there, what do you feel like you learned that you can apply to future life or something very insightful that you picked up during those periods? I think actually it's interesting. I think both of the both Google and Twitter during the times that I was fortunate to be there. I think we're very, very different companies. I think one actually one one thing that I feel I've learned through that relatively similar phase in both of them was how there isn't like a single template for going through that experience. You know, Google was in this incredible phase of you know growing really fast. I mean, at, you know, especially during that window where you know the company could do no wrong, and you know, it was a huge amount of optimism and enthusiasm, and the company was doing amazing work and was doing a lot of things right. Uh, but I think there were also a lot of things that were almost more coincidental as part of how we were growing, that it took a while to realize that, you know, those were not essential to doing it right again, learning how to use, you know, patterns from one side, but not uh, let them kind of overburden you to be like, okay, this is the only right way to to think well and to kind of seize the new opportunity as it arises, because every time is a bit different. Let's transition a little bit to color. So first of all, what is color in your own words? And then where was the inspiration for color? Walk us through the beginning story, the aha moment that got it kicked off. If you have money and a big health you know, problem, the US is actually one of the a really great place to be in some sense where like we can get really great interventions for you know big events. What we're terrible at is delivering scalable services that really should be very cheap, very accessible you know, all the way to the population. And for example, as we're facing the crisis right now, it's like, okay, we need to be able to test, you know, millions of people on a regular basis, very cheaply, very, in a very simple way and with a very rapid turnaround. And, you know, we keep thinking that it's a, you know, a lot of the media talks about it as if it's like a science and medicine problem. Whereas in reality, it's like a logistics and infrastructure problem. Like for example, in China, you know, they don't have better tests than we do in the U.S., but they have public health infrastructure, same in Singapore, Taiwan, et cetera. And what we're seeing right now is that complete gap and lack of that in the U.S. And what Color is doing in a kind of fundamental way, I think, is building 
a data-driven infrastructure to be able to, to do that from the private sector. And I think that's going to be the American way to do it, a uh, technology-driven way to push kind of testing and other services all the way to the edge. And so that's really, I think, what Color is all about. Our starting point was very different, where we started off from something that was actually very specific, which was, you know, the cost of sequencing had dropped a lot. I personally had an experience with genetic testing through uh, my personal family health history. So um, I had a lot of cancer in my family, um, wanted to get tested for uh, a mutation in a, a couple of genes called BRCA1 and BRCA2, uh, and found it to be incredibly onerous, expensive, time-consuming, et cetera. And at the same time, we we're seeing kind of the advance of like the kind of the genetics technology. And we started building a, a company on product, which is the, where the basic thought was, how do you make genetics extremely in, accessible and, and inexpensive? And so we started off really focused on that. But over time, what that pulled us into is this broader problem, which is the thing that had been making genetics inaccessible was one, the big technology evolution, but then secondly was actually the lack of infrastructure. And so when the technology problem got solved, genetics was still inaccessible. And I think that's what really pulled us into what our market is today, which is healthcare infrastructure. Walk me through the customer journey, the customer experience using the platform. Yeah. So, you know, the way I think about healthcare experiences is that it's similar to digital or other digital experiences where the best UI is the UI you don't, you don't realize you're interacting with. Like today, if, you know, for example, there's a huge amount of transaction overhead, right? Like you need to call to schedule, you need to drive over, you need to sit in a waiting room, et cetera. Like you maybe spend two or three hours to get 15 minutes with a doctor. Our goal is to completely change that ratio. Uh, and so, for example, the work we're doing for, with COVID testing, I think is actually the, a good example of that. The way it works, you know, they make scheduling interfaces accessible either through text, like a 301 uh, text line, um, or on their website, or, or like you know, public access points. But everyone gets funneled to the same process, which is you know, very simple web interface, you know, either mobile or web. People show up. Takes like two minutes to provide a bit of demographic information. Then they get to choose to schedule when they're gonna when they want to get tested. There are a number of different access points, but they just drive over. Everything is already recorded on their mobile phone, so they they go through this drive-through process that takes about two minutes end to end from like the moment you show up to the moment you exit. Normally, we built all the software that's used on site so that when people show up, they show their ID. They already know who you are, that you're scheduled, et cetera. You, you, provide, a, you, know, you provide a sample. You just get a receipt with a barcode on it um, that from there on, like you, your mobile number is already recorded. You know, within the day, you get uh, a text bag that says, okay, your results are ready. You log into it. You can see your owner results. But then also in the back end, what we do is that we automatically push results to a number of different endpoints. A, to your doctor if you added your own provider, but then also to the... California Department of Public Health, as well as if we are connected to your employer and you give us the authorization, we can also connect it so that they can trigger any kind of contact tracing and isolation protocols that are specific. So for example, if a police officer in San Francisco tests positive, you know, within an hour of the results coming out of the lab, the department of the police department already is aware and they can start all their protocols and kick those off to be able to, you know, do all the downstream follow-up if, if ever there was a positive. But I think that the most interesting part of this is like from, from the individual standpoint, the UI was extremely minimalist, right? Like they took 
a minute to schedule it and went through a drive through in a couple minutes and got a text and that's it. And I think that's the ideal UI for health services. <laughs> can you give people a sense of how many tests can they access at color or is it just, you know, you, you get your genomics and you get all of your genes and then you on the back end also can begin to do a lot more for public health because you're very much so focused on the macro public health. So how do you think about that? The way we think about it is that, you know, whether it's testing or other kind of health services, you know, we want to either be able to provide them ourselves or be able to connect with a provider that is sufficiently well integrated to provide a very clean and seamless experience. Um, you know, right now we've been focusing on two primary areas. One is prevention oriented. So that's where the genetics really comes into play, where your genes don't change through your life, but they provide a baseline data set to be able to prioritize which areas of your health are ones where you have the highest degree of risk. All of us are at risk of, you know, whether it's cancer, heart disease, et cetera. And it's a mix of our genes as well as our lifestyle and environment. Most of the way in which we incorporate that is that, you know, we wait for symptoms for, you know, for us to effectively be in a disease state to start managing it. Whereas when you have the knowledge of a, you know, a non-standard risk in any one of those areas, there are actually quite a few things that you can do preventatively to improve your odds. You know, to basically, if you have like a budget that you're going to invest in your health over your lifetime, just having the awareness of where is that investment going to give you the highest returns is something that can be pretty meaningful, especially if you're someone that has a really disproportionate risk in one area. So, for example, you know, me, me with you know BRCA, so the number of you know screenings that I do from a cancer standpoint. For other people, it could be a substantially higher risk of cardiovascular events where you know, being on a statin earlier in life can you know, make a dramatic difference in terms of whether you, you, know, you have a, a heart attack in your 50s, et cetera. So that's kind of one area. The second now that's really started in the COVID space has been really around kind of the, the public health direct delivery uh, mode. And that's kind of you know, like around COVID testing. You know, we ourselves develop kind of like we're full stack. So we develop the actual tests all the way down to the lab ourselves. Uh, but we also coordinate with other providers. So we're, for example, integrated with the Broad Institute, which is the um, reference lab for the state of Massachusetts. And so we do a lot of work, for example, for back to school and on the East Coast, like with you know, schools like Harvard, et cetera, where they're running our software and our infrastructure. So we run the program, but the backend processing is happening at a partner lab like the Broad Institute. So in that mode, we're much more of a kind of services and infrastructure provider that just makes the kind of ties all the pieces together to provide that kind of that seamless, you know, streamlined experience, uh, but doesn't necessarily need to ride on top of the technology we built in-house. What has been the hardest thing about building color? And then what would you say was the biggest surprise thing that was better than you expected with color? I, th I think the, on the most challenging side, when I think of it from a business standpoint, there, there are a lot of very interesting, diff, very difficult, legitimately difficult science problems, et cetera, that we've worked on and, uh, and, and overcome. But the, I think from a, when I think of it from a business standpoint, especially if, if you're coming from a software and, you know, especially consumer world, is the definition of a customer is completely different. The cust, you know, when you're selling or, you know, building a, a software or product in, in most kind of functioning uh, uh, markets. You have a buyer and a seller. And usually the buyer is the person who benefits from the service. 
the person who pays for it and the person who decides it's worth to pay for it. In healthcare, those are three completely different people or entities that have very different incentives, right? Like the beneficiary is you, you know, you're stuck in your body for your entire life. So you really have a long-term time horizon and you care a lot about it. High stakes, very committed. High yep. stakes, right? Like you're, you're unhedged, <laughs> right? Um, the payer, especially in the U.S., can be one of many entities, maybe the government, maybe your employer, uh, maybe an insurance plan, but they're all very different time horizons, and all of them have a different time horizon than you. Um, and then the decision maker is a doctor who generally wants you to be healthier, but is also heavily incentivized to save time and not get sued. And those are very different incentive structures that make it very difficult to reason about you know, the customer you know, with a big C. Because in reality, there are three very different stakeholders. I think conflate that thought process and decision-making and so I think that was, that's definitely, I think, the hardest part, in my opinion, of, of the healthcare industry is that kind of, um, uh, and I think, you know, like what's happening now in the COVID crisis is really shining a light on a lot of this. It's like shining a light on the kind of the broken incentive structure and the broken funnel of money and care delivery in healthcare, right? Like, like the, the core funnel of money and incentives in healthcare are the big payers who really don't make money by you being healthier, they make money as a, as a cut, a transaction. They're more transaction processors than insurance companies. And then health systems who primarily make money from high cost interventions. They don't make money from, from making you healthier and keeping you, giving you primary care. And I think that's, I think, one of the biggest kind of challenges overall that we, that we have in the system. So that's the, on the challenge side. I think on the positive surprise side, I think the thing that's been really amazing and surprising is when our work benefits and impacts people that we know personally. And so I've, I, I've lost count of the number of personal friends who've found like life-changing information through us, even with our investors where their spouse discovered that they're a BRCA carrier. Because of that, they got their parents tested and found early, early stage ovarian cancer with their mothers. Oh my goodness. You can uh, feel proud to leave your three sons every day and go to work knowing that that's what you do. You have a really unique seat having thought about uh, population genomics. As you fast forward five to 10 years out, you have a unique view to be able to make some predictions of things that you think will come out of this. You know, out of this, just meaning the advancements that were already happening and then the advancements that COVID is dramatically accelerating. What is obvious to you right now? And, you know, if you had to make a few bets for the future, what's obvious? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so one that is ties to a bit to what I was uh, mentioning earlier about the public, the lack of public health infrastructure in the U.S. is like, I do think that one of the very likely things that might happen is um, the, is that a lot of, some very big parts of healthcare services are going to be pulled out of the current healthcare model that we have and moved into a very lightweight, edge distributed um, care delivery model, um, kind of like what we're doing with COVID, where you know, a lot of healthcare is not gonna be delivered by health systems, not paid for by the big insurers. Um, so I think that both the spend as well as the kind of service delivery that to me, that's like a very high cost, um, unscalable infrastructure that is that works for you know surgeries, 
but it's completely inadequate to deliver things to people where it's accessible to them. So things like mental health, screening, vaccinations, um, you know, testing, et cetera. I think all of that should be pulled out of the current health system, should not be gated by doctors. Um, you know, these should be algorithms like, you know, you don't need a doctor to, you know, tell a woman that she can get a mammography at 45, right? Like those are all things that are like, you know, are going to be um, just standardized, software driven, not based on, you know, adjudication by insurance, et cetera. So I think that's, that's, I think one big thing that's going to happen. And I think it's going to make things more accessible and much less expensive. I love that, by the way, there's so many things that could just be an alert. That's like, it's time for your acts. Exactly. And I think right now we pay a huge toll. There's like all these kind of toll keep, like, you know, gates, et cetera, that are at zero value. At zero value, not to mention (laughs) the fact that I had to go to a doctor to then tell me that I had to go do this other. And you're like, that all could have been just an an assumed alert. Exactly. And I think the the benefit of that too is like, I do think it will make better use of doctors' times because I do think like, it's like, I think we're wasting a lot of that resourcing to, that could be spent in a, in a more you know, effective and value-creating way. So That's back to your point on if you have so many dollars to spend in your health, if you can get a fulsome sense of your genomics, you can actually apply those dollars in the most optimal way to extend your health and your life. And it's on the inverse of you want to do the same with the doctor's time. Exactly. exactly. And so I think that's, that's one, one, I think, big change is going to happen. Another one that's already happening is that you know, we historically had these service layers that were very integrated horizontally. Like, you know, there was one place where you get the, you know, doctor. There's one place where you get pharmacy. There's one place where, you know, the pharmacy cut all the medications, et cetera. And what we're already seeing is like almost like verticalization of very specific applications, right? So for example, you're already seeing it with birth control. You're seeing it with, you know, for example, like all these like um, online pharmacy types of services that so far, I've been pulling out things that consumers are willing to pay for out of pocket and that are kind of pretty specific. So birth control, things like that have a little bit of a kind of embarrassment factor to them. So, you know, hair loss, ED, you know, uh, women's like women's health, you know, et cetera, that are getting, you know, extracted and verticalized. Uh, and when you think about that, it's like those are a good interface, a packaged doctor experience where there's a, doc- a doctor still necessary, but they're kind of packaged logistics and a service of a kind of targeted pharmacy products right um and so i think those are going to they're going to be probably a lot more like mental health is i think very well suited for that you know mental health in many ways is made much less accessible because of the physical piece right like the the level of uh embarrassment etc that people need to get over to be able to go and physically meet someone in person etc i think adds actually a lot of burden and makes it less accessible from a logistics standpoint. So I think that's the type of thing that just gets peeled out into much more of a vertical digital, digital first service. Um, so I think that's one pattern that I, I would not be surprised if it plays out a lot more. And then maybe I wonder if the probably third one I put in there is the primary analytics or decision-making black box is going to shift out of being a doctor's head to being a machine learning algorithm for a lot of things. Like I think right now, to determine if you're likely diabetic. Uh, so before you get diagnosed with diabetes, you know, you, the most common path is that you show up for your annual visit if you happen to be compliant. And there'll be a set of factors that the doctor's like, oh, you're overweight. You, maybe you're you know, this kind of ethnicity that tends to be high, higher risk. Oh, your parents had, uh, you know, you have parents with diabetes or something. There'll be a few things like that. And they'll be like, okay, you should get an A1C test. 
and then you get a test and then usually, and then if you find out you're diabetic, that usually happens pretty late stage. There's a lot of data that's been around for in your life and highly available years ahead that would have enabled a much earlier diagnosis for between your genetics, between kind of like a much more refined understanding of like even, for example, your glucose cycles, if you wear, a, you know, one of those like, you know, glucose monitors, et cetera. I think right now the decision-making process is based on a, a, a small set of criteria that are not because they're the only ones that matter, but it's like they're um, small enough that they can fit into a normal person's head. So like the algorithm for determining you might be diabetic is deliberately designed, assuming that the operating unit is a doctor. So it's a normal human that can reason about two or three inputs. Whereas in reality, this is a machine learning problem. Like, you know, there can be, there should be a thousand inputs that can go in that can have much higher resolution to determine if you're likely diabetic or likely to have, you know, cancer, et cetera. Like, and I think a lot of these decisions are going to start moving into more into that mode, not into like a primary care provider applying a very simple heuristic uh, that usually only catches things at a late stage. And so effectively shifting things to more preventative, far earlier detection. Exactly. Got it. I mean, I want to transition a little bit to you. You're a serial entrepreneur. How do you think about the second time around? What are your strengths and like, what are the things that you kind of stay paranoid about purposefully? Yeah. I, th I think that the, I feel something I definitely learned through Mixer Labs and, and also through, through Colors Life is oftentimes there are constraints that are much more coincidental that it's, it always feels late to, to change and to adapt, but it's never better than now. <laughs> or it'll never be better than now once you start thinking about it. And so yeah. I think that's like um, one thing I feel I've, I've learned and I, and I think has, for example, why we're doing, like how the COVID crisis has been something that's been help, you know, enabled us to have an impact. And also I think genuinely helped us become a better company is, you know, my initial reflex would have been like, well, we're not an infectious disease company. Maybe we'll help some people with the COVID stuff, but we're not going to really take a front seat in that. But I think from the past experiences is like oftentimes like things that seem constants are really variables and almost everything is a variable and that you, it's just uh, some variables are a bit more expensive to move than others. I think in some ways that's one of the things that I feel makes some of the great entrepreneurs really good at what they do is, you know, everything is movable and, you know, and so really embodying that more. And I feel like definitely from Mixer Labs and, and like oftentimes when I look back, when I think what are things I would have done better or differently, it's oftentimes those kinds of things where I was like, I took a bit longer to acknowledge that something was actually not a constant. And you know, we can question ourselves much more aggressively than, you know, than our emotional desire <laughs> for questioning, you know, leads us to. So to me, I feel that's actually been the biggest change personally for me is kind of being much more willing and ready to be like, oh, well, you know, there's a better way to think about it. It's not just because we happen to start doing X that that's the, you know, the right way to do it. So what do you look for in a founder? So like knowing that there's something really unique in you that has allowed you to do this twice and to take all of the stress and change and constant that makes you a phenomenal founder. If you had to like, tell me a few of the adjectives that you think are absolutely vital to being a founder in order to win, 
What are those? I personally actually don't buy into that, Frank, to, to be totally candid. Like, I think what makes people exceptional is just that they did exceptional things. I've been actually surprised by how some of the best founders I, I know who had been kind of in a big company before were very successful after not being very good, in, for example, in a big company. And they just were exceptional because they just went and did something exceptional. I think really the, is that just people who just go and do it. I think I used to be much more like thinking, oh, there's this archetype, that, et cetera. But it's like, you know, just the willingness to kind of go do it. I feel more people are held back by thinking that there needs to be a... A certain way. Yeah, a certain way, et cetera, which, which I just don't think is true. Uh, again, maybe I'm wrong on that, but like I... I almost sort of agree with you, except the, the at least way I articulate it. I think that you can look to somebody's history of their life and they have done something exceptional prior of some kind. And it can be of anything. It could be exceptional at a sport or school or gotten through something exceptionally challenging or whatever it may be. But there's, they show um, a, a gear, I, I like to call it a gear, a gear of, and it's not, it's not even just grit. It's really a gear of um, exceptionalism. Um, where they're just willing to do whatever it takes to to make something happen. Or I, mean, to... I, no, I think that's fair. I think I think one of the things that tends to be I think common is there's a level of irrationality in some sense. Like you know, oftentimes like you know, most people, a lot of people who do this are not necessarily choosing the easiest path <laughs> uh, for their lives, right? Like it's kind of. What? You know, I mean, you mean it's not the easiest path to build your own business and try to. Fully changed all of like the genomics in the planet. Got it. <laughs> yeah, so so I, th I do think like you need to be a bit irrational at, at some level where it's kind of like, you know, um, long odds doesn't mean you shouldn't go and try. It's, it's like that, um, it's, it's, you know, that, that in that in, in Dumb and Dumber when um, uh, one, one in a million and he's like. <laughs> so you're saying there's a chance. No, I. Um, that makes me laugh a lot because it's it, it is really true. Um, it's it's almost the I'll will something into existence mentality. You've created a real muscle of excelling in the founder CEO seat. What do you swear by? Is it is is there is it your Peloton or you run or meditate or sleep eight hours? Like what are the things that are required to keep your brain on the tracks to excel at its um, optimal pace? Exercise, so cycling. In better time, skysurfing, but uh, that's too time consuming, unfortunately. So cycling and running. <laughs> so, uh, these days, but um, yeah, I think I, for, for me, it's it's really exercise. Like it's kind of it's my kind of escape. Like uh, I tend to just kind of like to just be alone on the bike and think, uh, or on on runs. I think that's the the, the time to be away. <laughs> Got it. I love it. Anything else that you would you would tell a young entrepreneur to start doing sooner in their career to to be more successful? Um, I think um, one one part is um, really seeking out people that they respect and that they really enjoy working with, um, and really nurturing those relationships. I think that's one. You know, the you know I found like you know I've been you know a number of people that have been in my orbit for you know since undergrad, and you know they've remained you know both great friends and different times partners, et cetera. So I think having a, a, a group of people that you surround yourself with that you're happy to be with no matter what. So I think that's, that's one big one. I think second is like, like being an outsider of an industry doesn't uh, mean you can't uh, jump into it. So really focusing on problems and things you want to work on and 
I love, I love that Ottman so much, which is you don't have to be like the 10 year expert in blah, blah, blah. I, I literally yeah. started LearnVest because I didn't understand my own finances and I'm very good at math. And I was like, I don't, it, it, and so I went and said, fine, I'll pass the test and I'll figure it out. But I, I think that's a good point, which is almost coming in with fresh eyes and as a newbie. Yeah. And no matter what industry you go into the old timers, you will always, not, not all of them, you'll always have some old timers that make you feel unwelcome. Just don't worry about it. Like, I mean, in healthcare, I mean, like literally, I mean, yeah, there are a lot of people who are like, you know, who are these clowns showing up? It's important to, to be re respectful and rigorous um, and do and try to do things the right way. So it doesn't mean disrespecting the norms and the standards and doing things responsibly. I think that those are very different, but not need, not feeling like you need the approval of the incumbents, if you will. What is the coolest pinch me moment so far at Color where you really were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that just happened? One of the biggest ones was um, when we got um, this massive contract with NIH to do a million person population. That was actually our first truly major contract. So it's um, um, uh, for a million person study, um, the biggest genomic study in the world uh, and where we, uh, we got one of the primary contracts for that. So that was, we were like, wow, that, <laughs> that just happened. <laughs> I, everybody, if you could see his face, he's so calm. He's like, you know, just the biggest genomic study in the world. And uh, wow, um, <laughs> that's pretty awesome. Um, what gets you out of bed in the morning? What gets you excited every day? Um, three young boys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, you know, usually the drum, the drum beat starts uh, between 5.30 and 6. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. It always starts in the five handle and you're like, please just sleep until 6. Um, and then other than color, what's one other startup that you're excited about that you've learned about in the last call it year that you just think is really exciting or impressive? I think I've been so under uh, underground kind of or like working so hard, like I haven't been kind of uh, following. Uh, uh, actually, one one company that I think is actually really interesting that's uh, started by a good friend and actually one of the people that I've known since uh, 1998 uh, and was actually my co-founder of my very first startup, um, Chris Varma. We started a company called Frontier Medicine. It's a biotech company that's using machine learning, a machine learning approach to figure out how to build drugs that are able to attach to cells in a way that is currently thought to be undruggable. Or like we're, so it's a, a way to completely open up the portfolio of therapies that can be developed. So I think that's a really cool company because it's at the junction of like, you know, deep medicine and science, but also machine learning. And I think, you know, could be one of the, you know, more novel ways to develop uh, drugs in the future. Everybody out there listening, if you want to learn more about Color, please head to color.com. Uh, you can join us next week for Inc. The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. And let's thank Ottman for being here today. Thank you so much, Ottman. Thank you for having me.